Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. I'm still seeing piles of snow out of my window, but I hope spring is in the air wherever you're at. I'm still waiting to see the signs here, which usually is sandhill cranes returning to our hayfields, red-winged blackbirds taking over the wetland areas, kind of dive-bombing the other birds. And I'm looking forward to getting on my bike. I've been riding indoors for too long now. But enough of me daydreaming about spring and birds and bikes. Today I am talking to April Ballard, a PhD candidate in the Environmental Health Sciences program at Emory University's Laney Graduate School and Rollins School of Public Health. April is a current Agents of Change fellow and recently wrote a moving essay for us in January called Striving for Dignity in Homelessness Research and Outreach. I really encourage listeners to take time to go read it. We talk about that essay, her work with people experiencing homelessness, her feeling stigmatized as a queer female, and ultimately finding her place, her voice, and her identity as a public health researcher. Enjoy. So now I'm super happy to be joined by April Ballard. April, how are you? I'm good. Hanging in there. Good, good. Well, it's really nice to see you. Um, You just had your first essay published. You were the first one in this cohort, and we're going to get to that a little later. But I wanted to start way back at the beginning. Uh, You grew up on a farm in Kentucky and eventually became a first-generation college graduate. But the journey maybe wasn't always so much of a cakewalk. You came from an underserved public school system. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of these challenges and other challenges you encountered uh, and, and how you overcame them going into college and pursuing your degrees. Yeah, so I would say, you know, my my background, similar to, to everyone's background, has um, been a constant through throughout my academic career, really beginning, you know, when I was applying to undergrad and then continuing during my master's and my Ph.D., so I, um, I went to a high school with about 1,900 kids. <laughs> so that means that there were about 400 of us in, in my class alone. And we had very few guidance counselors to help you know, navigate the, the college application process. And um, you know, going to college was never a question for me, even though my parents were not um, college graduates. But luckily, my mom really, really helped me out with the application process and uh, scholarship process because, you know, guidance counselors are, are stretched really thin. And I was able to ultimately attend the college of my choice. Uh, and, and I got a great education there, was able to run cross country there um, at a small liberal arts college uh, called Transylvania University. Um, but I was never labeled as first generation. So that meant that I never received any of the resources that came along with that label. and. You know, I, I admittedly, I really struggled my first year um, in, in college, but I feel like I spent, you know, all four years catching up to where everyone else was at. I remember being in classes and, you know, people would answer uh, faculty members' questions with information I had never heard of. Um, I was baffled at, you know, some of the, the knowledge that my fellow students had. Um, especially going to a private school, um, there's, you know, people that have have really uh, extensive and extensive resources, 
and are able to go to really great school systems throughout their whole life. And so, um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was never educated on evolution until I was in college. Um, I was in Spanish classes with people who started learning Spanish in elementary school. And I probably knew, you know, 10 words at the time. Um, so uh, it was a lot to navigate, but, you know, I just studied extremely hard for four years. And um, there are a lot of benefits also that come with going to a small liberal arts college. You know, I had faculty that loved mentoring and they loved teaching. And that is, you know, those people are really what pushed me through, you know, their guidance, their patience. And that meant the world to me. Um, you know, there were three faculty in particular that took time to guide me and care for my well-being and education. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll give them a shout out. There was uh, Dr. Jeremy Payden. He's a Spanish professor. Um, and then uh, Drs. Sarah Bray and Belinda Sly. They really took me under their wings. And um, ultimately, those three individuals um, led me to continue my education. Um, and I think, you know, my background, um, it also impacted my graduate career in a number of ways, beginning with my options for where I could even pursue a master's degree. You know, I had scholarships for undergrad and then my parents helped me out with the rest, but I couldn't afford to go to a top school for my master's in public health. You know, I couldn't have afforded to go to Emory for my master's. I didn't, I didn't have the money and I also wasn't willing to take out $100,000 in loans. So uh, I opted for a state school because I could afford that. And I, I, I was lucky enough to have a fellowship that paid for my master's. So it ended up being a great choice for me financially, but also personally, I wasn't ready to, to leave Lexington at uh, Kentucky at that point. But during my master's, um, I didn't really, you know, I didn't seek out research opportunities. I knew I wanted to get a PhD, but I didn't know what it took, you know, to get a PhD. And, um, I had some opportunities that just happened to fall into my lap. And again, uh, great mentors, um, Dr. Wayne Sanderson and Dr. April Young, who presented other opportunities to me. Um, but uh, I didn't know that I, if you wanted to get a PhD, then you should really be seeking out research opportunities. Um, but many of my peers, you know, they had done research over the summers in, in undergrad. Uh, for me, I was focused on all my side hustles for money and doing my, my coursework. And so I didn't know that I needed that experience. Um, but again, you know, I had I was lucky to have mentorship and got some experience. But I think that really ultimately influenced how my PhD application process went too. Um, and you know, I listened to some of the other podcasts, and I was really um, encouraged and inspired with Dana's story, particularly about her kind of stumbling through the medical school process and ultimately. Kind of changing tracks and i think that's a really important lesson um for all of us you know we don't we don't always succeed our first go around and that's okay and so similarly you know i didn't get into any program on my first round of applying i got a lot of interviews but you know i didn't get in and i'm sure there are many reasons for that but i think you know being first gen uh, never being labeled first gen and and other parts of my background really I think culminated in a way that led me to be unsuccessful that first go around. I didn't know you were supposed to get a faculty member to like help you with your application process. And uh, I, I really just tried it on my own the first time. Um, and obviously it worked out the second time with a lot of great help and some more experience under my belt. But 
Um, what I took away from that, I think, is a very different perspective um, with, you know, thinking through who isn't getting into programs, how many people still don't get into programs on a second try and why. And so I try to bring that perspective with me to a lot of different um, spaces now. I think I try to think, you know, how do you get your foot in the door if you don't even know where the door is? Um, so, yeah. So just a quick programming note, uh, Dana, it refers to Dana Williamson, one of our uh, one of our current fellows, and you can check that podcast out in the archives. So one thing you mentioned there that no one else has mentioned is athletics. And I just want to quickly ask you, because I, you know, my experience in leaving high school was sports. I didn't realize for me were kind of a discipline, disciplinary tool. It was something after I got done with um school, you went and I went and played football and basketball or baseball. And um, it kept me on track somewhat. And when I got to college, uh, it I, I found myself losing my way a little bit without sports. And I'm wondering if cross country anchored you at all in college or if it was a, a hindrance. Yeah. So uh, I think similar to you, I played sports, you know, my whole life. Mo- most of the time I was uh, a two sport um, athlete and student at the same time. So I think I, I, I gained so many skills from that, especially related to time management. Um, and in college, I ended up, I only ran for, for two of my four years, but uh, definitely that first year, especially, it was really, really instrumental in being strategic about my time. It helped me be an early riser. You know, we had swim practices in the morning um, and then we would have running in the afternoon and, you know, squeezing in classes and homework and all of that. Um, but I think it also is so important for for building community. I think that was my my main takeaway. I really learned how to um, just be around a, a diverse group of people, and so that was really important to me. But I think this time management piece is probably the the biggest takeaway. So out, outside of athletics, uh, some of your identities: queer, first generation, female, academic. Um, so. Can you talk about this transition from feeling like maybe some of those things you, you felt like you needed to stifle your voice and flipping that around and recognizing their value and and more of an empowerment tool uh, through your identities? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, this really took some introspection and it's honestly, it's a constant and iterative process. And, and by that, I mean, it changes depending on what environment I'm in and as my identity evolves over time. And so, you know, I'm at the point now during my PhD, and I think, you know, as a nation, we're really in a similar place that I've realized just how flawed all the systems are that we exist in and interact with. Um, And because of where I'm from, because I'm first gen, because I'm queer, because I'm a female, because I'm white, I see things a certain way. And in, in qualitative research, we'd call this my positionality. And so um, I bring that positionality with me everywhere that I go. And it influences how I see things, how I think about problems, how I solve problems, but it also influences how people see me and how they interact with me. And so it's important in my research, but also just in my, my day-to-day life. And so I, I use that now as a tool, um, a tool for thought, for compassion, for understanding. And what I mean by that is that I often think about, you know, how my identities shape how I move through the world, the opportunities that I get, that I don't get, how I'm afforded certain privileges. 
Um, and what allows me, what that allows me to do is then think through how others deal with those same privileges and challenges or how they, you know, they may not know exactly, um, I may not know exactly what their experience is, but, you know, I can empathize and I can find commonality in their stories and I can see how someone different from me um, can or cannot, you know, do certain things and access certain things. And so I've been really, really fortunate, I think, to be in a really open department at Emory. And I think that's allowed me to, to ask questions, to, to pose solutions and explore ways that, you know, we can just do better. And um, I have friends that are that are like family to me that have also pushed me to be more comfortable and confident. And this has allowed me to really own those identities. And so when there's, I think, um, overall, when there's space for a person to feel comfortable and respected, I think that is when an identity gets kind of elevated to, um, you know, more of a superpower level. You know, it's truly when collaboration can happen. And um, I know you and I have talked about this before. I'm a bit of an introvert. So expressing any idea um, that I have can take some effort until I get comfortable with people that I'm engaging with. Um, but, you know, sticking with that example of my department on Emory, I think the transparency and openness of student faculty communication has really allowed me to simply just ask questions. You know, I don't always have the solution um, and asking a question might not seem like a lot, but I think asking questions gets people to think and reflect a bit more. And depending on the question, it can also lead people to think differently about a certain topic. So I think, um, yeah, that's been really important to me and in my evolution with my identity. And um, it's been really, really great for me. That idea of positionality is something, uh, admittedly, uh, is, is somewhat new to me and not to just plug the program that we're here because of, but what I've noticed, a uh, peek behind the curtain. So we, we workshop the essays through Agents of Change through all of the fellows. And I've noticed just the incredible um, diverse backgrounds we have and everybody coming from different areas has made the writing process and the editing process for me so much richer. And it's made me really realize the limitations of my traditional newsroom when I don't have these, the luxury of 12 individuals um, who have all of these different experiences and thoughts and ideas um, to really um, to really dissect the writing and, and the reporting and the ideas. Um, so I, I've learned a lot through the program as well. So I, I know you told me you listen to the podcast, so I'm not able to take people off guard anymore, but I've been asking everybody, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? Yeah. So uh, being an introvert, obviously I've been thinking about this for months since I listened to the, the first podcast, because I can't not be prepared for any sort of, um, conversation. It's just not in, like it's not in me to not be prepared. So I've thought a lot about this and actually the answer didn't come to me until like two nights ago. But, um, and probably a week ago, it could have been a different answer. But moving to Atlanta actually, I think has been incredibly important to me, um, in my personal and professional growth. And I think the, the move really, um, it's represented so much for me in so many ways. So I, as my essay um, talks about, I'd grown up and lived in Kentucky my entire life. And I lived in Lexington, Kentucky for eight years. And that city particularly was um, incredibly important to me. It really 
kind of shaped me into what I see as April 2.0. And living in a place so long, you know, it lets you get really comfortable. I met and still talk to some of my very favorite people there. But I think that comfort can be a little stifling sometimes. And for me, that is what happened. Not that I knew it at the time. So moving to a new city where I knew no one challenged me and, you know, made me grow in ways that I didn't even know that I needed to. Um, uh, as I've alluded to, I didn't, I'm an introvert, but I didn't know that until I moved to a new city where I knew, I, I knew no one. So that was an interesting <clears throat> discovery. Um, second, I've obviously started a PhD program and I'm hopefully halfway through. So that clearly has been important for my personal and intellectual growth. And Emory was a great choice for me. It's, I've been shaped so much by my mentors and my peers. Um, the city of Atlanta is just amazing in general. You know, there's so much history here. And um, I've been doing a lot of work with the community members here. And that has made me love the city even more. I was a little nervous about going further into the South, especially being queer. But Atlanta has honestly over delivered for me. It's a very queer friendly city. And the people here are just amazing. Um, but I think, you know, most importantly, moving to a new city has brought me an entirely female queer community that was completely accidental, but has been so rewarding. And, um, you know, my group of friends has um, really allowed me to be completely myself, I think, um, has led to April 3.0. And that has really um, then transcended throughout all sectors of my life. So I want to send, you know, all my love to my friends that are really family. Um, even though some of them have uh, moved to the Northeast and abandoned us. But um, I do want to talk just really briefly about one specific member of my friend's circle. Um, I think it's really important for, for science specifically, but um, she's incredibly important to me, but you know, she, she really represents an important lesson for those of us in science to why representation and, and diversity matter. And so moving to Atlanta and starting a PhD program was obviously pivotal just in itself to shaping my identity. But um, my friend Sydney also started the program at the same time as me. And honestly, that and her have been just as pivotal as my experiences in my PhD program. And so she's my best friend and, and we call each other, we're our, each other's life wife because it's like a work wife, but she's also um, my wife inside of and, and outside of work. Um, but she's uh, she's a queer female. She is also a queer female scientist. We have similar backgrounds. We study similar things and we're in the same cohort. And so we quickly identified each other as both being queer. She really forced her her friendship on me as a as a the residential extrovert that she is. Um, and I bring her up because I'm not sure that I would have been as open and outspoken about my queerness and my background. Um, and just about myself, if she hadn't also been in my in my cohort and hadn't been with me along the way. And so we had a, a, a running joke for a while that when one of us would mention our queerness to people in the department, we were supposed to just mention both of our queerness to to kind of reduce the amount of work that we each had to do. Um, but, you know, most people think that we're the same person anyway, so it doesn't really matter um, if we mention the other one. So. Um, Anyway, I was just used, I wasn't used to talking about parts of myself because um, in a lot of places I could get fired for being queer or, you know, make coworkers uncomfortable. But having someone else who can say, yeah, same, 
um, really allowed me to take my guard down. Um, and I just think it's incredibly invaluable, invaluable to have someone who just gets it, um, especially throughout something that can be as challenging as a PhD. Um, so if I experience, you know, a microaggression and I tell her she gets it immediately, you know, um, if I get worried about talking about my queerness, she gets it and she backs me up. So I think it's just incredibly important to have people in your professional and your personal life who just get it. And honestly, Sydney has been just really pivotal to my identity and my success, my success in, in the PhD program. Um, I might publicly, I might regret publicly admitting it because our department make fun of us and will never let me live it down. But, um, you know, she deserves all the praise. So it'll be worth it. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. And it's a good reminder that um, the fact that you still have to feel like going into a department, oh, there's this there's this part of my identity that I'm not sure how it's going to go over, which is totally foreign to me. I'm a, I'm a white, you know, white straight male and, uh, you know, my identity, I walk in with confidence and uh, not really worried about telling people who I am. I mean, that that idea is just uh, it's it's pretty astonishing, but I'm really glad you've you found her and ha- have this relationship. That's really cool. And speaking of your PhD program, so your your essay, we're speaking right after your your essay dropped, um, Striving for Dignity in Homelessness Research and Outreach. And it was our first to publish this round. And you spun a beautiful narrative weaving in your, your own experience, uh, searching with dignity with your work uh, with the people experiencing homelessness. So correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but this topic is somewhat different than your doctoral training and dissertation research. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what your research is and how it connects to your essay and issues of people experiencing homelessness. Yeah, so my dissertation work is actually on um, child exposure to animals and animal feces in Ecuador. So it's a little bit different. Um, But the overarching theme is that I I really focus on um, this intersection of environmental, social, and behavioral determinants of disease related to water, sanitation, and hygiene. So that's kind of the zoomed out, the zoomed out version. Um, and, and there's intersections both um, in, in child animal exposure, because um, we know that certain types of households, people that have lower socioeconomic status can, can have um, dirtier environments and, 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 and things of that nature. So there, there's parallels in both. Um, and it's it's quite similar, um, even though they're different topics to to people experiencing homelessness. So that's kind of the the connection between the two. And so, as you wrote, people experiencing homelessness face a variety of obstacles and stigmas. Some of these we think about a lot, you know, food, water, clothing. Some we don't. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to realize that you know, food, water, and shelter are obviously very important, but dignity needs to play a role. In outreach, and what are some of the ways you and your colleagues have tried to, to walk the walk on this? Yeah, so um, I really became familiar with this topic um, when I was working in Appalachia as a research assistant. So this was before I started my PhD, and um, I was working on quite a few studies where we were um, focused on people who use drugs. And um, it was a lot of community-based work. You know, we were, as I talk about my essay, we were um, setting up tent, like a pop-up tent, and we would go to like gas station parking lots, uh, like Walmart parking lots, and we had a grill. There were just three, three of us, 
three um, white females, and we, we were just giving away free food and trying to get people to, to join our study and, and trust us. And so people would be walking by, they would come and talk to us, and they would end up just telling, you know, telling us their stories. Um, and then later I was working as a qualitative interview for, um, for a similar project um, in Appalachia. And I heard even more of people's, people's um, stories and people telling me, you know, they were living in, in what everyone would consider a home, but it didn't have electricity or running water. And um, then moving to Atlanta, I, I read a piece that was in, I think it was APHA, um, their journal. And it was about people experiencing homelessness in Atlanta, not having access to sanitation and um, seeing, you know, open defecation um, happening in the city. And so that kind of that article made me think if this is happening in a city where people have tons of access, hypothetically, um, this is definitely happening with people, um, people who are experiencing homelessness in rural areas. And so that, you know, that's led to to a number of projects from then from from that and and for me um i just think about if i didn't have water or i didn't have um the ability to shower um and then people walk by me and just ignore me as i think a lot of people do um to people who are experiencing homelessness that would just be such a horrible feeling and i've heard over and over from um people i've worked with who um who use drugs and also who are experiencing homelessness um just saying you know I just want to be treated like a human. Like I, I, I maybe use drugs and, and, and I maybe, I, maybe I'm on house, but you know, I, I'm a person and, and I want to, I want to be treated like that. And so that has um, just led, you know, it's really changed my perspective and led me to think about how, how we can do better and how I can, I can shift. It, it doesn't take, no one has to change their research agenda to do work like this. You just shift your approach a little bit. And so that has led um, me to me to try to do that um, in every way possible. And so um, my work right now is really focused on pragmatic solutions and human centered approaches. And, um, you know, I try to try to take a, a harm reduction approach. And so what that means is, um, you know, we, of course, the ultimate goal is to end homelessness, right? But that's going to take a long time and a lot of effort. And so in the meantime, people um, deserve to, to have their health protected, right? Like they deserve, healthcare is a, is a human right. And so in the meantime, we can do things to, to improve the health of people experiencing homelessness. And so that can, that can mean, you know, giving people water for drinking and, and, and for hygiene and that can prevent things like hepatitis A um, and, and co even COVID-19. And so um, that not only boosts and just like a plug for the importance of this, it not only protects the health of people actually experiencing homelessness, but it protects the health of everyone. Um, and we saw this, there was a multi-state um, hepatitis A outbreak that started a couple of years ago. And um, you know the biggest risk factors were people exper like experiencing homelessness and and in, and using drugs or injecting drugs, and but there were people that didn't fit those. You know, they weren't experiencing homelessness and they weren't using drugs. Those people also got hepatitis A, and it's because we we interact with people who are experiencing homelessness and people who use drugs, whether we know it or not. Um, it 
anyone can 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 hold those identities or they're not identities can 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 be experiencing homelessness and use drugs and so it it protects everyone essentially and so um you know what does this look like in practice um i talk about the dignity packs project in my essay and so I think that's a really good example. We're, we're handing out with my colleagues, um, Allison Hoover and Anna Rodriguez at Emory. We hand out hygiene, period, and personal protective equipment supplies to people experiencing homelessness. And we directly get feedback from them to improve what we hand out and how we hand it out. And so we're intentionally centering um, their needs and their desires. And that has been so critical to our project. We've learned so much and it's been able um, Ultimately, we've changed our approach. We don't hand out prepackaged kits that are all the same. We set up a table. We let people select what they want to meet their acute needs. And then um, we let anyone take what they want. We don't ask about their housing status or anything. And there are no requirements. You, you get what you want. Um, and so I think, you know, that's just one example to kind of demystify what um, a human-centered, you know, dignity dignity-centered and harm reduction strategy to homelessness can look like. And I just look forward to the field moving forward on this and getting creative and seeing how we can do better in our public health practices and approaches. Because at the end of the day, um, every person deserves to be seen and to have dignity, no matter if they're housed or unhoused. I want to point out something that that I've picked up from you uh, because of working with you on this essay was that words matter with this. And you, we have both during this interview said people experiencing homelessness as instead of saying the homeless, um, which is kind of common, uh, common use language. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why, why that distinction is important? Yeah. Um, and I, I even caught myself uh, earlier. Um, so I think, you know, that also practice grace with ourselves and others. But the people first language um, is really important in, in all in all um, all types of um, ableism or or not ableism um, and, and identities and experiences. So it really is putting the person first. It's humanizing them, and then it's you know after that um, you say whatever you need to to identify that an individual. And so people experiencing homelessness instead of homeless person um, recognizes that that person is first and foremost a human. Um, and then they're just experiencing homelessness. They're not tied to that. Homelessness, um, people experience homelessness um, sometimes cyclically. Um, sometimes people experience it once and then never again. And, and the, the point is um, to, to to remove stigma associated with that. Um, that that word homeless, come, there's a lot that comes with that. It's the same as instead of like, people um, still commonly say uh, drug addict, it's, it's incredibly stigmatizing. So it's people who use drugs, um, people in, who inject drugs. And so um, it's really just focused on removing that, that stigma and putting the person first. So of course, the first part of publishing something is the is the hard part of writing and and getting your thoughts down. But the second part nowadays is is just as important, and that's now you you have this thrust out into the public sphere. So when you first started this fellowship, I know you weren't you weren't on Twitter, um, and we are we are 
common souls in our introvertedness and uh, maybe aversion to social media. But now you are, and, and this story, as I said, has been thrust out into the public. What's been your experience, um, both kind of prior to publishing and 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 after using social media to kind of get your thoughts out there? And any tips for others that are looking to put a more personal touch on their science communication? Yeah, so I... I honestly, I learned a lot about myself and my work and my beliefs in the process of writing that essay. Um, the ideas I outlined in, in my essay are, are in no way, you know, new topics to me. Um, I think about my queerness and how others see me and my safety and everything there in between every single day and in some form or fashion. And I'm also actively working on various projects focused on people experiencing homelessness, um, and continuing continually um, thinking about how we can move the conversation related to public health and people experiencing homelessness forward, both from a community standpoint and a research standpoint. But I um, I don't always write these thoughts down, right? A lot of the time, I'm just having conversations with people about it. Uh, I'm definitely not talking about it, like I said, in a joint manner, um, like I did in my essay, or in you know just a, a kind of lay lay term way. So I really had to sit down and write and take a break to think more and write some more and talk to my queer friends and my partner and go round and round. So um, I sent my first draft to one of my best friends, Sydney, the one I mentioned earlier, who um, just knows me and will, will tell me how it is. And so she outright said in the first draft, I wasn't getting personal enough at first which is pretty typical for me. You know, I'm not a sharer. Um, I'm, you know, at least not a deep emotional sharer. So her advice really helped me. And uh, I had some places where, for example, I was just including kind of facts about LGBTQ rights. And she just flat out said, people don't care about that. Like, that's boring. <laughs> people care about you. Tell me about how this impacted you. And so that really helped the piece get to, to what it is. And so I think that's a good approach for anyone who feels, you know, um, vulnerable to to have people on your team that are like that, that that will push you. And so my friends and I talk about the importance of labeling ourselves as queer a lot. There's a lot of stigma about queerness and a lot of stereotypes, especially if you're a queer woman. And if you don't like if we don't label ourselves and stand our ground and demonstrate that we are what. Um, we're what queer women look like, we're what queer women scientists are like, then people will continue to hold, you know, belief, wrong beliefs and, and, and stick to stereotypes that they have. And so um, we also want, you know, other people, other queer fo folks to feel comfortable bringing their, their whole selves to the table. So that is what pushed me to get per so personal and to talk about my queerness in such a public way. And um, I, you know, as it, as it, um, I think I've had a lot of response, both from, from people who are queer, but um, those that aren't. And so I think that has been really powerful and meaningful. And I think that is, that is why it's so important for us to share these parts of our identity. You know, a lot of people who are queer have reached out to me, but a lot of people that identified with my story because of where they where they were brought up and, and different parts of their identity, whether it be um, their gender or, um, you know, their religion, 
there was something in my story that that people who are not queer could identify with. And so I think that's kind of the the moral of the story here. And don't get me wrong, it, it's hard and it's vulnerable to label yourself and to own um, identities in certain spaces, but we need to do it when we can. Um, and I think uh, Ami said said this in the first podcast of the, the series that stories are what changes people's behaviors and minds. So I guess, you know, that that's the takeaway. Share your story, share the human parts of you because those are the parts that matter. Um, they matter, in my opinion, more than, you know, your intellect. So we just have to show up as our whole self. And um, I've been surprised at liking social media. You were asking about Twitter. So far, I've liked it. I'm just now really kind of diving into it. I see the importance of, of using it. Um, and it's, I've had some great conversations on there. But I also see that as one kind of small piece of the larger science communication puzzle. I'm going to have to take a page out of Sydney's book and start using um, no one cares when I'm editing people's <laughs> people, people's stories. I've, I've been too nice for, for many years now. No one cares. <laughs> it's true. I'm a very straightforward person, so um, I don't need the fluff. So when someone says no one cares, I'm like, you're right. Great. <laughs> So do you see this kind of science communication? Um, you know, it's not always going to look like this. It's not always going to be kind of deeply personal and, and kind of intertwining your experience with your research. But just in general, do you see science communication communicating your work to more of a lay audience? Um, something you want to play a continued role in your work moving forward? Definitely. So, um, you know, I think first and foremost, what is the point of our science without communicating it? Um to people and in a real life way, you know, numbers and data are useless without a type of translation. And so I see science communication really as, you know, essential for that. Uh, I also think as scientists, we have an obligation to communicate our findings, both to the general population, but also to the populations we work with. So for me, um, science communication needs to be and will be at the center of my work. Uh, obviously, I work with extremely um, vulnerable and marginalized populations, and often I think research among such populations is very extractive. And by that, I mean, you know, often researchers go in, um, they get the data that they need for their grants and or their manuscripts, and then they leave, and there's no sort of reciprocity. And I, I, um, I refuse to adhere to that norm. So the people I work with deserve more than that. They deserve to know what I'm finding. They deserve a chance to say, yes, I agree with your observations or no, that is not my truth. And they deserve to see real real change resulting from their effort and their labor that they put in while they're telling me their stories. So for me, I see you know science communication as storytelling. As scientists, we are storytellers and we are shaping beliefs about populations, about places, about people, and we should not take that lightly. And I do not take that lightly. So I plan to communicate my work with other scientists, with the general population, with policymakers, uh, with community leaders and organizations, and with the people I work with. So um, that will be very central to my work. So last question today, what is the last book you've read for fun? Yeah, so I, I brought my books over here so that I could get the titles and the authors right. Um, 
So I just finished two books. One is White Rage by Carol Anderson. She's actually an Emory faculty member, um, but it's um, a lot about history um, throughout the U.S. that um, from, you know, redlining to policies from presidents that have really been rooted in racism. And I learned so, so much in this book and that no president is um, innocent in, in being racist, including um, Abraham Lincoln. So um, he did a lot of great things, but he also was problematic in his own way. And uh, I think that's, I, this, that made me really enjoy this book because I love the world is messy and I like books that kind of hold, hold, that, um, hold that as true. And then another, um, another book I read um, uh, is a, it's a series of essays and it's called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And it is about um, a lot about music. And so um, I'm not, not a lot of people know this about me, um, but I'm, I just love music so much. I listen, my Spotify, like listen to hours every year is a ridiculous number to embarrass to tell you what it is. But um, this book is um, all about kind of different experiences and relating it to music and artists and pop culture. And so um, that, was a really, really great book for me to listen to or to read. And then um, I'm currently reading Lovecraft Country, which is my first go around at some sci-fi horror um, fiction that I have not read before. Um, so I recommend it. There's, a, I think it's the show's out on HBO right now um, that's similar to the book, but it is also about kind of um, directly calling out Lovecraft, who is a horror author that, um, was very racist and kind of flipping that on its head and centering um, black folks as the protagonist. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a really well done book. Awesome. That last book reminds me of what they did with, so somebody asked me recently on the podcast, what book I had been reading and I had just reread the Watchmen. I, I'm a big graphic novel, comic book nerd. And, um, when HBO redid that, they flipped it and had a black protagonist. And I remember um, thinking it was just stunning uh, how they had changed the book. But anyway, April, thank you so much for today. This has been so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our Special Projects tab. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast production team is myself, Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Haddad. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Vina Singla, a senior scientist with the NRDC. Have a great week.